we're going to be at. Genesis chapter 20. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 14. Page 14. And as you are turning there, let me, let me tell you why I believe this text is of importance for us this morning as a church. Because God reminds us here in Genesis 20 that even if he has been teaching us for a long time, providing for us for a long time, caring for us for a long time, we tend to need to learn the same lessons over and over again. That as long as we are still breathing, still walking the face of this earth before he has returned, God is still working in us. The Bible calls this sanctification. Where although our identity, our hearts have been changed by him, our eternal salvation is secure, he is still implementing, working in to our souls exactly who we are. Helping us understand the supremacy of him in all of life. And then we're also removing the sin that often blinds us to him. And Abraham in particular, we'll see here, he fails once again in Genesis 20. He fails once again. In some ways, there are new ways that he has failed. But in a lot of ways, there are the same ways that he has failed. But yet God is not done with him, as he's not done with you, Christian. And so if you have ever maybe sinned the same way more than once, or maybe you have fallen into the same temptation, there's good news for you this morning, that you're in good company, and that God specializes in sinners like Abraham, sinners like me, who tend to need to have the same lesson be taught to me over and over again. So that's what we're going to do, is we're going to look at Genesis 20 from start to finish. And before I do that, I would ask that you would just pray for me as I pray for you, and then I'll read the text at hand. So let's go ahead and just pray one more time together. Father, I thank you for being the God of Scripture, for being the God that has revealed himself through his word, that we're not... We're not having to to look elsewhere or to rely on subjective experiences to know what you're like, but that you have revealed yourself. And and God, I, I, I believe that Genesis 20 is another way that you have revealed yourself to us. And so, Lord, as we look through this narrative, this account of Abraham again, God, I pray that you would encourage us all by it. Encourage us to, to trust you more, to, to never stop fighting sin, and also to rest in the very tools that you have given us to be content and anchored in you. God, I pray for our kiddos next door and the teachers that are leading them. Will you give them wisdom to, to teach Genesis 20 to them? And God, I pray for their hearts that just the littlest of hearts and minds that are both in that room and even in this room, that you would, you would change them, allow them to see you for who you are, and that we would be able to rejoice with them in that. Father, it's in your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 20. There's 18 verses. Let me go ahead and just read through them this morning. 
Starting in verse 1, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Verse 10. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also prayed, healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks. Be to God indeed. All right. Well, now, if when we read through that account, if it seemed oddly familiar to you, you are not crazy. You are not crazy. We have seen something very similar to this back in Genesis 12, didn't we? Where Abraham and Sarah traveled to a foreign place, to Egypt in Genesis 12, and there, just like he did here in Gerar, he tells the king and the, the royalty of the area that Sarah is his sister, not his wife. In Genesis 12, God had to intervene to protect Sarah and also to protect the promise given to Abraham. I believe we see the same thing once again, don't we? Now, it would be one thing, right, if... Genesis 12 happened, going down to Egypt, and then, you know, the very next day, this happened again. There has been time for 
Abraham to really learn that this is sinful. But let's consider all that has happened since Genesis 12. All the things that God has been doing in the life and heart of Abraham, where he has blessed them with incredible wealth, right? He has provided for them through all kinds of circumstances, even during times of war. Remember back in Genesis 14, and even last week for us in Genesis 19, we saw God bring fiery judgment against sin, though he protected his people, those who had entered into relationship with Abraham. But the most incredible thing that has happened is just the communion that God has been having with Abraham and Sarah. On multiple occasions, God has appeared to Abram. He has spoken to him. He has encouraged him, right? He has entered into this covenant with him. This agreement of all of what God will do with Abraham and his family. And even just in Genesis 18, we saw that the promised son that was going to be given to Abraham and Sarah, the promised son that would lead to the blessing of the entire world, We've been told that it's only a year's a year away. That it was coming. But yet, despite all of the work that God had been doing in Abraham's life, he fails, doesn't he? He fails once again. And it says in verse 1, is when they traveled, he once again said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. She is my sister. He's not honest about his relationship with his wife. And we know why that is the case. Because he is looking out for himself. He does not want to be killed. He understands that his wife is beautiful. And knows that if he admits, or believes that if he admits that Sarah is his wife, they will kill him in order to have her. And so he gives up his wife to save his own Skin, but, but what do we see here? What do we see here, church? Well, we see that God intervenes, doesn't he? But let's look at the story. Let's look at the narrative of what happens. So we're not told why they travel to this new region. We're not told that there was a, a famine in the land like Genesis 12. We, we really just don't know why they have traveled and sojourned again. But when they get there, Abraham does this half lie, which is a full sin, by the way, when you are more concerned about yourself than others, and gives up Sarah to the, the king of the region known as Abimelech. Abimelech. Now, Abimelech uh, is a general name for royalty in the near ancient world. So if you read throughout your Bible and you see other Abimelechs, it's not the same Abimelech, it's just a, a general name for someone who was king in certain regions. But it was very common in there for the king to basically get whatever he wanted. And so upon arrival of Abraham and Sarah, he sent forth to inquire about Sarah, wanting her to be a part of likely just his group of women that he had access to. And so likely Abimelech, after Abraham essentially throws her away. Abimelech likely takes Sarah into his dwelling, right? Into the king's chambers, into his bedroom, where most certainly Sarah would have been forced to sleep with Abimelech. 
And think about this, church. Think about how, how much this is threatening the very promise of God and to Abraham. See the tension of this moment. Where all throughout Abraham's life, we've been told about this coming son that would come through both Abraham and Sarah. And once again, it's threatened. That promise is threatened. Because for all we know, Sarah could have been pregnant with Isaac at this point. And think about this. If, if Abimelech was able then to, to sleep with Sarah, there probably would have been conjecture, maybe confusion on, on who is the dad. Is it Abraham or is it Abimelech? The promise would have been threatened. Or think about this. Or if Sarah wasn't pregnant, how in the world is the promised son able to come if Sarah now belongs to a foreign king? You see, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, he's intentionally building out this tension. Because But look at verse 3, church. Look at verse 3. Look at the first two words. But God. But God. Some of the best words in all of the Bible is when despite the circumstances of this life that's brought upon by human sinfulness, we have one that's beyond that. It's God himself where he goes, but me. But me. And so we see in verse 3, we see God come to Abimelech in a dream, right? Tell him what is really going on. Tells him the truth of the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. And tells him, I am stopping you from sinning. But notice it wasn't primarily against Sarah, even though it would have been sinning against her and defiling the marriage between Abraham and Sarah. But look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. You'll notice primarily God is concerned that Abimelech is singing against who? Him. Singing against me. Which is what all sin is ultimately against, church. Against God. The God who is most holy. Against the holy God. And what does Abimelech do with this information? Well, he begs for his life, doesn't he? He begs for his life based on that he did not know those details. He said, I am innocent. Though God never declares him truly innocent, does he? He just said, but based on what you did know in regarding to Sarah, I am going to give you mercy, even though you were a dead man. A dead man. And gives a clear warning to Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham, whom God calls a prophet here. The first time we're actually, we actually see that title given to a person. which will be important at the end of the chapter. Now, church, do you see the grace of God here? Do you see the way that God is stepping in, that that but God in Scripture is fueled by grace, that he is stepping into human sinfulness and saying, I am God over all creation. I am the God who's in control of all things, and I will always keep my promises. His promises will not be thwarted. 
even when men like Abraham or men like ourselves, individuals like ourselves, have not been faithful to God, God has always been faithful to us. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let me show you a quote by Derek Kidner. He's an Old Testament professor, theologian. He says this about this subject. He says, on the brink of Isaac's birth story, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man, morally as well as physically. It will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. I think Kidner is exactly right here. But I also think that it's not just the Abrahamic covenant that we could say that's true of. Right? We could say that's true of the promise of salvation, of the way that God is going to be able to reconcile sinners back to him. The promise of how sinners like Abraham and myself, we could somehow be made right with God. It wasn't going to come because we did everything right. Or we were able to somehow get God on our side, somehow not become dead in our sins. But rather, God himself would take it on him to make us right, to make us whole to redeem us, to give us grace. It will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. And it was. When Jesus went to the cross, it was clearly achieved by the grace of God. My sins, your sins, atoned for by someone who did not have any sin, but yet took them on the cross now, returning to the narrative, what does Abimelech do? Right? What does he do here in response to God? Well, quite interesting, even though that he's this pagan king, right? we don't know much about him, he heeds the words of God, doesn't he? He commits to returning Sarah to Abraham, but he wants to have a conversation with Abraham first, doesn't he? So starting in verse 9, he starts by confronting Abraham, asking him, why would you do this to me? What did I do to you that you would bring upon this judgment against me, that you would put my whole kingdom in jeopardy? Saying, why were you so selfish? Why did you only care about yourself? Why did you not care about your wife? Why did you not care about your God? And can I say pastorally, this is what sin does, doesn't it? Right? It, it takes, it makes you inward. It makes you think of me, myself, and I. It blinds you from seeing that the consequences of your sin go far beyond you. It affects all of those around you. Some that you've never even met before. And we see that Abraham, he still doesn't get it, right? He still doesn't, he doesn't see the weight of his sin in this conversation with Abimelech. In verse 11, he tries to blame Abimelech in the region, saying that there was no fear of God in this place. That's why I, was, I did what I did. You know, and the great irony, as we'll, we'll look at in just a little bit, the great irony is it wasn't the fear of God in Abimelech that was lacking, but it was the fear of God in Abraham that was lacking. In verse 12, he tries to nuance that, you know, there was, I didn't, it wasn't a full lie. It wasn't a full lie. You know, Sarah is my half-sibling. As if that really made a difference. 
Or in verse 13, he even tries to blame God. He tries to blame God. Well, God made me wander away from my home. If he didn't do that, I probably wouldn't be here. We see just how, even though we get the privilege of being able to to know and walk with God, we never, we can never about the power and the authority of God, the one who speaks rightly about who God is. And that's what Abraham does. And it says at the very end of our chapter that he prays. He prays, and a miraculous thing happens where God gives children to Abimelech's wife and female slaves, and they bore children. Now, I don't know if their barrenness was new or been going around for a long time, but God knew what even the prayers of these people were. Even when we don't say our prayers out loud, church, God knows them. He knows them. And this is amazing that these people who did not deserve anything from God, Abraham, Sarah, Abimelech, the entire region, have this encounter with, with God and his grace. Now, if I can, for the remainder of our time, what I want to do is I want to pull out, I think, three theological concepts that we see in this chapter. And we've been seeing throughout the book of Genesis, but I, I think God highlights them here in Genesis chapter 20 that I believe were absolutely necessary for the original audience to know as well as us today. 
as well as us today. First, is that Genesis 20 teaches us about the power of God, doesn't it? The power of God, that God and God alone is in control. We see this particularly with God opening up the the wombs of different women and closing them as well. That God has that kind of power. Now, I'm not saying, church, that God does not use modern medicine to bring about child-rearing. All I'm saying is I I think it's clear from this scripture that God ultimately is in control of the womb. And if he's in control in the womb in a physical sense of a physical birth, he's also in control of a new birth, spiritual birth. And we can thank God for that, that he is in control, that he's the one who changes us, that he's the one who moves in. We also see the power of God in speaking to Abimelech in a dream. And how marvelous is that? that? Even when, circumstantially, it doesn't seem like anything is going to go well. Because of deep sin of Abraham and others. And even when we think, okay, there is no way that this is going to lead to anything good. We see a but God. God is at work. And there's nothing that he cannot do. Notice also the power of God in being able to save those who are dead in their trespasses. Notice back in verse, back in verse 3, when God first comes to Abimelech. Before he tells him what he is going to do, notice he reminds him of what his state really is. And he says that you are a dead man. A dead man. Because of sin, which is true of all of us, all of us. You know, the New Testament uses that language over and over again, that outside of Christ, right, outside of relationship with God, we are dead in our sins in a way that we are walking dead men, walking dead women. And much like Abimelech, you're not able to save yourself. You're not able to change the circumstances. You're not able to change your condition, Dead people cannot change themselves. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your sins, but God, God stepped in just as he stepped into the life of Abimelech here. And God alone has the power to make you alive to Christ. And how much good news is that? It doesn't matter what you've done. He has the power to save. What power is that? What love is that? And may I say, if, if you've never experienced that power, don't know that you are dead in your sin, I pray that God would use that this morning, that he would quicken your heart For you to understand that outside of Christ, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right. But there's one who came and lived and died in your place. And he can make you alive. He can change you. Nobody else can. He can. Number two, not only do we see the power of God, but we also see the power of sin, don't we? The power of sin in this text. That even though Abraham had been walking with God, right? He had believed God. He had received righteousness. We're told that 
Abraham struggled, still struggled to walk with God at times. And though his righteousness was secure, and righteousness, it's a fancy way of saying that your identity, right, your standing before God is secure in him. Even though that is true because of what Jesus has done on the cross, does not mean that we will not struggle. It does not mean that until he returns or calls us home, we are in a spiritual battle within ourselves. Always wanting to grow in our likeness to Christ. Always wanting to grow in our way that we rightly respond and worship God in all ways, in all places. And I think when we see the power of sin then, church, we must then resolve to never stop fighting it. Christian, we must Resolve to keep fighting sin. Knowing our identity has been secured. Knowing what Jesus did would be forever. He was, he's not going to take that back. But we can respond to that by keep fighting sin. And treat sin in the way that God tells us to treat sin. Like the enemy that it is. Earlier in Genesis, we see God describe sin as something that's crouching at the door. Wanting to kill you. It's always wanting to take your eyes off of Christ and his promises and put them on where? Not on him. Or not on sin, but really on you. Because I want you to take your eyes off Christ and put them on you. John Owen, a Puritan, he is very well known for this phrase when he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But how? How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, that's number three. I believe this passage reminds us of the greatest benefit of belonging to Christ. And that is to have the fear of God dwelling within us. If you recall, look back at verse 11, actually, just for a moment. Where Abraham said, I did this, speaking of giving up his wife. I did this, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham thought Abimelech was lacking a fear of God, but it was not Abimelech lacking a right fear of God. It was Abraham himself. There was no fear of God to be found in him. It's Abraham's lack of fear of God that was of concern. And so you know, there's actually a couple different ways that the Bible describes fear in really two primary, primary ways that we see fearing God in Scripture. One is to be afraid of God. Afraid of God. This is when you're afraid of His power, afraid of His holiness, afraid that if you are in His presence, you will die because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Afraid of His judgment. Maybe this is what Abraham had in mind in speaking of the people of Gerar. But there's another fear of the Lord that's talked about quite often throughout Scripture. And this is a fear of the Lord that's actually given to Christians. It's something that you desire. It's something that you should delight in. It's not to be afraid of God. It's actually quite the opposite. To fear the Lord as a Christian is to draw near to God. 
in all circumstances. And I believe this is the fear of God that Abraham was actually lacking in this moment, not recognizing his own need for it. See, a fear of God for a believer, it's a posture of the heart. It's saying that I trust you and you alone. It's I'm in awe and reverence of you and you alone because of what you have done. That I fear you because I belong to you. And I know we often, when we think of fear, we, we tend to only think of it in a negative sense. And the Bible does talk about that, but you have to realize there's multiple places in Scripture where it still translates fear because it's the best word to try to encapsulate said, you belong to me. And we shake a little bit with that because of how good it really is. And what a gift that is. So not only are we reminded of the power of God here, we're not only reminded of the power of sin, but also the great work that God is going to bring about through a promised son, one that would lead to our salvation, one that would lead to our sealment, of the fear of the Lord. And so now, when you have that type of fear of the Lord, you don't have to be afraid of God's holiness anymore because you have an advocate. You have Christ. But you're either now you have a fear that leads to life, a fear that leads you to abide in him that says, I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to trust you. 
That's the God we have, church. That's the God of Genesis 20. That's the God who's working all things to his perfect and mighty will. Once again, church, we are seeing promises made, promises kept. That's something to delight in. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in song. Well, Father, once again, I'm delighted about all the ways that you have kept your promises despite repeated failures of people like Abraham, even people like myself. I wish I could say that I've only had to learn things once, but God, you know that's not true. But God, I thank you that you, you never give up on me.